I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Honey and Co. The Food Sessions. I'm Ita Masrulovic. And I'm Sarit Thacker. Today we have the most exciting guests, Sami Tamimi and Tara Wigley. They're both from the powerhouse of Ottolenghi. Sami, of course, was a partner from the outset, and he is a co-author on the amazing book Jerusalem that he wrote with Yotam Ottolenghi. Tara's joined the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen for 10 years. She's been developing and creating recipes there. She and Sami wrote the book Palestine, a celebration of Palestinian food. We wanted to have them on the podcast since we heard about this amazing project and we can't wait to talk to them. Welcome, Sami Tamimi and Tara Wigley. Thank you for having us. Hi, thank you guys. <laughs> a huge pleasure and a really long time in the making because actually we were so excited about this idea of like getting your book and cooking all your food, then kind of hosting loads of people to eat it and then everything changed. <laughs> <laughs> Now, a year and a half later, we're on a computer and we're having to... <laughs> Instead of tasting it, she's, she's saying, yeah. But both your journeys into the world of food were a bit different from each other. So Sammy, why don't you start and tell us how did you get into the world of food? I was just cooking from... day one when I was born I was kind of <laughs> this kind of love for food I was always kind of interested in what's happening in a kitchen more than you know going out and playing with my friends when I was 15 I worked I started working in a hotel in West Jerusalem as a kitchen porter and kind of opened this new wall to me which is huge kitchen that it got each section and each section have a special person who does one thing and then at the end of the day you have this big banquet or you know whatever you serve in unlike the kitchen at home where you know my mom and sometimes aunties or my sisters will just sit and cook together and I wanted to know more so I kind of started to follow people around in the kitchen before you know it like a few weeks later i was in charge of breakfast in the hotel and i used to get up really early in the morning and scramble eggs for like 150 people it was just like this little skinny <laughs> palestinian boy cooking uh, scramble eggs that we don't even have in, in our kitchen we never did scramble eggs it was like an omelet or shakshuka or something to do with um, yeah. za'atar, yeah. No, but for people that don't know, like a hotel meal kind of back kind of in Jerusalem would be like a massive spread of food as well. It's not just like your sausage, bacon, eggs in a kind of English thing. You, you know, no, there's a no, lot I of mean, food. It was in the 80s, so you have to learn how to do vegetable flowers and all sorts of leaves, some cucumber. <laughs> Sammy, you can do radish roses? 
Yeah, of course. <laughs> We've got all the recipes are in our book for the, uh, for the, radish flour, the carroted flour. Exactly. And scrambled eggs for 200. And to do a swan from an apple and uh, to organize the, the really sliced cheese in a kind of way that kind of people don't um, take from the middle, but from the top, people still took the middle bloody hard. I would always take from the middle for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was kind of uh, very, very exciting to start something that, you know, I, I felt kind of so much curiosity to, but also I had this kind of passion. I used to get up every morning at three o'clock in the morning to rush on a bike. It was just 10 minutes ride to the hotel and just kind of start my day on my own. And it was just really kind of elevating and I loved it. And after that, I just started working in different places in Jerusalem to, to try to learn as much as I can different cuisines. I mean, I ended up with these two hippies in East, where was it? It Baka, where they had a, a vegan Indian restaurant. Whereabouts in Baka? I grew up in Baka. I can't remember the name. They were so kind of out of place. And, you know, the, the restaurant was really busy. But the type of people that went there, they all kind of wore these sherwals. And I mean, the, the food was really good. But for me, it was kind of so weird because, you know, back then you didn't even have an Indian restaurant in, in yeah. Jerusalem or any, any part of the, you know, Israel. Yeah. It still isn't the biggest cuisine there, actually. And it's... I mean, in Tel Aviv, they had one Indian restaurant yeah. then. But you did move to Tel Aviv after that, didn't you, Sami? Like after Jerusalem, you moved to Tel Aviv? In the 90s, I, I lived in Tel Aviv for 12 years and I worked my way through all the restaurants there and then ended up in Lelit, which is kind of Californian. Such an important restaurant at the time. It was kind of like started yeah, the revolution yeah. almost. I wasn't really interested in French food, so Lelit was kind of the gate and it opened my eyes to so many things. And the fact that you can actually combine the dishes that I grew up on eating and having a new kind of twist on them. And this is the style that I kept or kind of borrowed quite a lot from. So how do you end up in London from like all this time in Tel Aviv and <laughs> Jerusalem, a young chef? How do you find your way to London? I had no going forward, you know. I did all the good restaurants in Tel Aviv and there were like five of them. <laughs> and um, I felt like I'm stuck, you know. I just wanted to learn more and uh, develop myself. And the second intifada started, and as an Arab living in Tel Aviv, I felt a bit kind of uncomfortable. And yeah. The intifada, just to explain, the, the second intifada kind of the was when um, uh, buses were getting exploded yeah. in central Tel Aviv, and it felt very, very um, unsafe and kind of weird in a way, because people were just kind of really in a constant panic all the time around. Yeah. And... Yeah. Although I, I never heard anything from anybody, but I just felt like as an Arab, it just kind of didn't feel right to be in Tel Aviv. And I couldn't go back to, yeah. to Jerusalem. So London was kind of, actually it was London or Paris, but then I chose London because of a partner I had. We're happy you chose London. So. <laughs> yeah, lucky London. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, lucky London, lucky us, you know. And it happened that I met uh, a lady called Yael. She had the place called Baker and Spice just behind Harrods. Uh, yeah. She came to eat in Lilith and she wanted to meet the head chef. So I came out and like, I'm, I'm moving to London. It's like, 
okay, yalla. you have a job, just call me. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where, you know, the whole 97, I, just before Christmas, and I've never seen a turkey in my life, a whole <laughs> turkey. And I had to learn everything about how to do Christmas dinner. Yeah. It was quite fascinating. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was such a kind of quick learner. And before you know it, it took off. I kind of introduced the style of food that I was cooking to Baker and Spice. And this is what they were known for then. This is where I met Yota two years later. We worked together in the same place for a couple of years in different kitchens. And then Noam and Yota decided to open a place and they offered me to join. And I was like, hmm. Because we were really, really good friends. And I was worried that, you know, it might jeopardize the whole friendship. But then two or three weeks later, I was kind of, okay, okay. guys, I'm just going to join you. I'm just going to go <laughs> and, and the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is definitely history. I mean, we've obviously worked with you um, over the years. Uh, Itamar, more than me, because I was on pastry and you were always doing the food. But yeah, I was thinking when you, because I, I worked with Sami... He taught me, basically, you know, and, and I was thinking when you said that you were in Lilith and you were kind of introduced to how to cook these flavors and these foods. And this is how I feel about working with you in Otolenghi. This is, it was a revelation, how you cook and how you present your food and actually, you know, how you work, how you relate to people. I can't tell you how much I learned in that time. And <laughs> my first period in Otolenghi, I used to have two shifts a week with Sammy, and that was like the highlight of the week. Special time. The, the special time. <laughs> Everything that Sammy does, even if his work section is so beautiful, how he arranges the knives, you know, everything that Sammy touches, everything that he does is like sparkles. <laughs> and it's delicious. It's and, delicious. And it's delicious and it's beautiful. Thing. And he has, you know, Sammy has the <laughs> fingers. You do like a plate, you do a salad and it's not quite right. And Sammy goes like thick. With the fingers. I don't know what he has there, but suddenly it's amazing and it's delicious because Sami blessed it. It's like when you spend hours doing a kind of a hairdo and then uh, the last minute before she goes into the catwalk, you just go like that. The final show is ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the debt that I have to the time that you, you spent with me and taught me and, you know, just looking at your work and I can't thank you enough. Oh, bless you. And Sami also, you know, I want to see him blush, so I'm going to continue a little bit. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that you can see Sammy blush. We've never seen him blush over all these years. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he, he definitely has cooked us some of the best food we've ever eaten. But Tara, you kind of joined quite a bit later. So you actually in my last year in Otolenghi, so 10 years ago, I remember meeting you briefly and we kind of had an interview. And then so how was your journey into food? How did you get into it? My journey was very different to Sammy's. I used to work in publishing for a decade in my 20s. And then when I had twins, I wanted to retrain. And I slightly just thought I could combine kids with working in restaurants or catering. And so I went off to Ballymaloo Cookery School in Ireland for this sort of incredible three months and thought that everyone would turn up with dogs and children and their lives. And of course, <laughs> everyone else was completely footloose and fancy free. Can we just explain, like Ballymaloo? It's a cookery school, but it's, it's a kind of haven. It's a, it's a complete 
retreat from life as we know it. I used to have to go to Tesco's once a week just to get a reality check to remind <laughs> myself that this is not my life and that I don't live with 55 chickens and get my seawater to cook my lobster in every day. As you know, because you've done courses there, it's just this haven and you spend all afternoon kind of watching Darina and Rachel Allen and Rory cook the dishes, which you're going to then be in the kitchen the next day doing. And it's just the most incredibly privileged three months where you just have this madly amazing produce. And you're also infected with the sort of Darina Allen belief that you can just grab your wooden spoon and do anything in life. And she is such a force of nature and really makes you believe that you can do things like email Yota Maslengi and just say, hello, can I come and meet you for an interview for a job that I don't even know exists? She's amazing and the whole place is amazing. So if anyone can ever get there, you can do day courses, you can go for a meal in, in the hotels. You can also listen to us chat to her in one of our previous episodes, but she, she's a force of nature, Garina, for sure. Yeah, she is a force inspiring. of nature, yeah. She's incredible. I was trying to work in restaurants for about six months in London before I looked around and realised that there was not too many other young mums working in restaurants and it was complete madness. And then Sarit, you were the biggest kind of life moment in terms of my career. Noppy was just opening and you were interviewing, but in the nicest possible way, you sort of asked me what I was trying to do and just sort of how I thought this was going to work, kind of being in a kitchen till one in the morning and then going home to then two-year-old twins who were getting up four hours later. And I cycled back from this interview we had and I just, it was just a massive life moment of me thinking just, what am I trying to do? And why did I leave publishing? And why have I just done this cookery course? And so then I was just kind of doing my own thing in Stoke Newington, filling up people's freezers and fridges with my little kind of vouchers or making soups for people, slightly thinking, shit, what am I doing? And then I got this call from someone, well, I thought it was my husband actually pretending to be Yossam because he was my kind of dream desert island chef and he was describing this job where he wanted someone who was a keen cook but wasn't a professional chef but was also someone who was sort of strong with words and had a background in kind of writing or editing and he wanted someone who was slightly kind of between these two worlds to help him with the recipe writing side of things for the guardian column and so having felt like I was slightly straddling two stalls and kind of falling between worlds I had this dream opportunity to actually combine the two and that was sort of on the Thursday and I just rocked up at his flat the next week yeah. and it was complete sort of luck and timing. But if it hadn't been for you three, I, I would still be in Stoke Newington having an existential crisis. Well, it's funny because sure. I remember reading your CV and there's a few people that I remember their CV and meeting them. And I remember thinking for a kitchen, a professional kitchen, maybe this is hard. But for Yotam and what, what he was looking for at the time, this is a perfect kind yeah. of combination. And then it was so funny because then I was with Yotam and then he wanted me to learn the, the Yotalengi way in terms of food. And so I was sent to be with Sammy for a couple of days and we will never forget our first meeting together because he just didn't know what I was doing in there because <laughs> he had all these amazingly kind of fast, young, kind of Polish guys and everything. And then there was this sort of posh girl tottering around the kitchen. who I'd never had a preserved lemon before. And I remember <laughs> he gave me this preserved lemon and the first thing I said was that I thought it tasted like soap. And he just, I remember him phoning Yossam and being like, who have you sent me? And little did I know that that was the beginning of my culinary sort of epiphany and that I'd be having preserved lemon quite literally in every meal sort of after that point. And it, it is an epiphany because it led to this. This is the book of Palestine, yes. Yeah. And a lot of preserved Tara, lemon. But I just want to ask, this was kind of the seed of the Otolenghi test kitchen. You were the first one, no? For the longest um, yeah, time. Yeah, and Sarah Joseph, who's now in, in Tasmania, 
yeah there's been a lot of lot of babies come through and uh, yeah we're moving actually in a couple of weeks to a new new venue so yeah on it goes it used to be me and Yossam in his flat in West London which was very intimidating because I was never quite clean enough when I did my tidy down for Carl and it just wasn't really uh I wasn't cutting the mustard and I had to drive Yossam's car to Westfield which was so intimidating this electric car to kind of buy all the groceries so yeah his kitchen, it felt like being at the back of an aeroplane. It was a tiny sort of little kind of galley kitchen. Now it's a big thing. It's a huge deal, This the test kitchen. It's a proper thing. So how do we go from like a test kitchen and working with your time and columns and stuff like that to the two of you creating a book together? How does that kind of come about? It was good with Tara in a way because the place has changed so much and definitely needed a, a new pair of eyes to kind of see things from a different angle. So, so you literally traveled together? Like yeah, we traveled you went, together you and together. we met yeah. a lot of people and we ate our way through everywhere, wherever we, we kind of invited them, just kind of sit down and eat. And we were in a different journey. I mean, me going back home and uh, to everything is familiar. And uh, we were not looking for recipes or inspiration. We were looking for to meet as many people to basically inspire us because what we decided from the beginning is um, it's not a book about me or Tara or it was more about, you know, the, the, the Palestinians and how do they live nowadays in Palestine. And how did it feel? Because you hadn't been back for years, Sammy, no? Like, yeah, when was I didn't go for years and uh, I only started talking and meeting my family just before our first trip, I think. It was quite fascinating. It didn't feel alienating or kind of strange. But, you know, there's quite a lot happened there. And it was important to see different level of people around the country hearing the story, but also sharing the food with them as well. Yeah. And also Palestine, it's, you know, it's like chasing smoke. It's much more than a just a collection of recipes. And we're both lucky to have publishers who give us books with enough extent to actually be able to really spend some time writing because we knew that we wanted Palestine to be a book that wasn't at all tinged in sepia or the, the book that we were telling wasn't one where kind of stories are handed down from grandmothers to mothers to daughters and that we wanted it to be a really kind of practical book telling the story of modern day Palestine and just what's going on and you know for those who are outside the Middle East we sort of it's not always a story that we're told. So that's what we very much and, wanted and to do. Because I do feel, you know, people come to view the Middle East. It's either like war and conflict or pomegranates and roses. And neither are the whole truth. Yeah. And it, yeah, yeah, completely. That, that was quite uh, important. I mean, for me to do such a book, to kind of uh, show that. Because, you know, I come from there. I know the people that in the West, when you hear about Palestine and Israel, you only see black and white and you know, there's quite a lot of grey and it was important to show the, the real kind of how people live and it's not all war and it, I mean there's quite a lot of grim but uh, this lady in the refugee camp, uh, she wasn't born there and she had to basically spend all her adult life there. Talking to her, she's like, my dream is to go to the sea. But, you know, she, it's really impossible for her to go to the sea because she needs so many permits to kind of... Uh, and she just doesn't bother because she doesn't want to go through the whole humiliation of being kind of asked so many questions. So she's still in a refugee camp and her dream is just to go to the sea. It's kind of quite humbling. But at the same time, she does something really, really extraordinary. She started cooking for people to help her 
disabled kid. Disabled and son. then three years later, she opened a cookery school and she hosts dinner in Ramadan for hundreds of people, some of it for charity and some of it to help the community around. So she doesn't sit and cry about her not being able to go to the sea, but actually, you know, she's making something quite positive. So these are kind of the stories that we wanted to show. It was funny when we made we made shishbarak dumplings with her and she, uh, because it's not normal for a man to be in the kitchen, she was a little bit sceptical initially about Sammy coming in and kind of whether he could cut the mustard. So it was funny seeing this kind of internationally well-known sort of chef having to prove himself in uh, in her camp, but he did, thankfully. Did, did you convert her? Was she okay at the end? <laughs> yeah, you know when, uh, we, when you start and they look at you and they say to each other, he knows, he knows. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it was an amazing moment, actually. Like, it was a real privilege to be, as an outsider, to be... There was two or three moments where, you know, we talk about Madeleine moments when you're, you're, people are into kind of food and, and the sort of connection of food and identity. But it's, it's rare to actually see someone kind of going down that, that hole in the moment. And, and the shish barak dumplings that we had, along with a couple of other dishes, me watching Sammy eating this bowl and being taken back to the five, six-year-old boy was really something. And it was really kind of palpable. So it wasn't just a kind of vague concept that we talk about. It was really specific. Another one was a horrible bubblegum flavoured ice cream in Haifa, which uh, also took him on his trip <laughs> down memory lane. But Dara, explain, <laughs> explain Shish Barak to people in a beautiful way, so in case they don't know what it is. Not the bubblegum ice cream, but the Shish Barak. Dara <laughs> doesn't like the dish. I know. Do you know, it's the one thing. Really? Uh, you've, you've, you've asked me to be poetic about the one thing that I don't love, um, which is Shish Barak. How can you not I, love it? It's I, pasta and filled and yogurt sauce and like little bits of meat or lamb. It's the fermented yogurt. Ah, uh, okay. I'm sure I would come to love it if I had a lot, but it's just that fermented yogurt with yeah. the meat dumplings is li- quite literally the one thing that I do not <laughs> completely love. I'll leave the poetry to Sammy. <laughs> That's quite funny. I do love it. For me, it's it's heaven, you know. It's beautiful, soft dumplings with meat, spiced meat but it's, filling. It's quite an interesting example of a recipe of, in terms of how the book came about. Because when Sammy first came with the idea and first came into Test Kitchen with it, it was full of very, very traditional Palestinian recipes, like, for example, shishbrat dumplings. And although they're in the book, they're not at all representative of the type of recipes we have in the book, which are much more practical and quick because you're not going to come home on a Monday night and make shishbarak dumplings. So it was quite interesting sort of seeing the journey that we went on from what Sammy thought the book was going to be. So you weren't kind of wedded to tradition. It wasn't kind of glued to traditional food. To stay true to the cuisine and also making sure that, you know, we don't lose the flavours and, you know, the profiles of the flavour. But we realised, I mean, I I remember going home and thinking, who's going to be... rolling vine leaves for three hours so people can eat it in three minutes. I eat it in two minutes, but (laughs) I really wanted to have it in a book, but you can't have it in the form of rolling because people are not going to make it. And people that know it already, they they don't need a cookbook to do it, really. So we decided to do a vine leaf cake, which is is basically the same flavors, but uh, baked in an oven. And uh, it works perfectly well. It's, It's not intimidating. The end result is just beautiful and delicious. So mm. I think it's, I mean, there's always an aspect of modernizing recipes as well to how you live now, because I think potentially the ones that were traditionally passed down were very carb heavy. And, you know, a lot of these things that people kind of steer slightly away from in modern day eating. But this cuisine that's very 
I suppose, handled. The fact that you need like a group of women sitting around a table rolling and folding. And this is probably what is becoming obsolete from the world. Wouldn't you say, is this still happening there now? Are they still sitting around these tables? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a big part of this whole kind of Palestine cookbook because it's I'm, I'm a Palestinian man and, you know, you, I wasn't allowed in the kitchen. Palestinian cuisine is not just dishes that you cook. It's related to, you know, identity, the land, the farming. It's passed from one generation, from mother to daughter and so on. So it's not just a dish that they just cook on a Friday night. Yeah. So yeah, it's all kind of part of their culture mm-hmm. as well. And uh, I wanted to stay with with that tune of doing these dishes, but also not losing the whole essence of I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We went in search of one such group of ladies and they're called the Yogurt Making Ladies of Bethlehem. And we'd sort of heard about this group and we were slightly kind of passed between cars as though some kind of (laughs) drug deal was being done. And then we were following ways up this hill and then ways wouldn't recognize where we were going. And after about half a day, we went into room and found these ladies making their yogurt and all their different labne and hangi. And then we sort of sat around and had lots and lots of different yogurt products. And then the grandmother who kind of ruled the roost, she had about 40 goats and about 65 grandchildren, all of whom were in the same room. And I do <laughs> not exaggerate. It was the maddest You mean the scene. goats and the grandkids? <laughs> The The goats and the grandkids and the exhausted looking husband. And then she had this washing machine or this dryer that she was kind of using in lieu of of a kind of (laughs) yogurt preserving thing. It was completely mad. They invented Um, this kind of washing machine cylinder into making butter. Wow. So (laughs) this kind of huge thing that they just bring in with a, it's like a mooly, but it's like, you know, huge kind of. I remember asking, are you do, do you do it? No, you know, I have so many kids around here. They, they just do all the work. I just tell them what to do. 
but this is why we, we do not have a, a, a recipe which uses fermented yogurt in our book because we very much wanted people to be able to get the ingredients and then there was one time that sammy was trying to recreate a taboon oven in the camden test kitchen to get the kind of the oven where you've got all the hot rocks at the bottom of it so you can get the lovely yeah. indents in the flatbread so that all the oil spoons into the thing and sammy went off to the garden center and came back with two bags of rocks which he then nearly kind of broke this <laughs> camden test kitchen oven with and then we realized that again that this was something that it's was not going to be in our book and then people were very happy to use their flatbread that they were going to either quickly I, make I or have buy. a pile of those rocks as well it's quite a big way of cooking isn't it it's you know <laughs> you, you always have to test it how it's going to work at home with these things sammy i just want to ask you said that coming back it did feel very familiar to you and very kind of You knew what you were going to. Were there any things that you didn't know about Palestinian cooking and Palestinian culture that were new to you? No, not really. I mean, there are quite a lot of young people that want to do something kind of different, which is, you know, in the 80s, 90s, we didn't have that, where it's a third generation and they want to do something kind of positive. So it becomes in a form of art or food or being creative about things, but also switch on and, you know, I want to do something for the community as well. I grew up in, in Jerusalem and then Tel Aviv in 70s, 80s, where it was still kind of naive, thinking everything is going to be fine. And uh, I haven't seen the separation wall until my trip before the first trip with Tara. And it was just kind of, I was taken back. It's quite... Grim to see, yeah. you know, um, I'll just give you a little story where, you know, my, two of my sisters lived five minutes from each other. And now you have to travel four to five minutes to yeah. visit both of them. These are the changes that I kind of didn't experience before. You go back to quite a lot of nostalgic things that you remember and uh, they are part of it, but most of it, it's gone. Yeah. In some of your stories, you see that, like you said, young people are finding new ways to kind of create or, or to prove that there's a lot more going on. I think that that's a really beautiful part in the book where you yeah. showcase these people and give them a voice. Yeah. We met so many people who are just so enterprising and you know, in terms of people running restaurants, we spent two nights with two male chef owners and one was a young guy in Haifa and for him it was food was nothing but just business and delicious food and he was all just about making money to look after his family and get ahead and he didn't want to be drawn at all on politics or identity at all and then the next night we were in Nazareth and we were with an older guy and for him food was nothing but politics and everything about his restaurant for his music choice and the seating arrangement and his opinions about everyone it was just all politics and And that was two separate nights. And as an observer like me, you know, no right or wrong way. It was just a different way of people getting by and making food and making money and making a living. and Trying to, to kind of navigate your way in this really tricky situation. Also, it's quite interesting to hear different voices and different opinions of life and how these two guys, I mean, one is younger than the other, the way they deal with their realities there. Whether you agree with what they say or not is two different things, but you know, it, it is their reality and not yours. And I think it's also why at the end of the day, it often so comes down to food, because you can talk and disagree yeah. till the cows come home. But then at the end of the day, the act of all sitting and eating and sharing bread, you know, it sounds a bit sort of tired as a metaphor, but it is so true, isn't it? Of, you know, if we all come together around a table and eat, that's kind of something. And 
And I think there's a real atmosphere in the restaurants in, in the Middle East, which is just, there's just such an energy because it's like, this is what we have. So we drink, we eat, here we <laughs> it's, are. It's true. Yeah. We, we, we met a lot of people that state their religion as food versus an actual, you know, the food of the area rather <laughs> than, the, yeah. than anything else. Yeah. We all know if you strip things down into just sitting down and eating and enjoying the food, is everything will be fine. It's just... Sammy and I have started a new religion. It's, it's yeah. worshiping the cult of yeah. tahini yeah. and uh, shatha. So we are, we are. I mean, shatha. We've got quite a lot of followers now. Yeah. yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the food in the book because that the it did kind of explode. It came out just at the beginning of lockdown, but you know the book has really took off. So many people are cooking so much from it. The shatha yeah. is becoming a little bit of a cult uh, condiment. Yes. It is. It is. Well, it is. I mean, it is actually addictive. It's a problem. I mean, I find it now very difficult to eat things that aren't sort of doused in shutter. Tell the listeners what uh, it is. So it's a super simple fermented chili paste. So you just chop up, finely chop either red or green um, chilies, and then you put them in the fridge for three days, covered in a tablespoon of salt for about 250 grams of chilies. And then after three days, you blitz them up with um, some cider vinegar and a bit of lemon juice and then just put them in a jar and seal it with olive oil. You'll be carrying it in your handbag before you know it. Yeah, it's very, very addictive. The longer you keep it, the better it gets, you know, it keeps fermenting. Yeah. So it starts with really spicy, but then two weeks later, it's, it's really sweet and salty and spicy. And it's just delicious. It's just, and it's just beautiful with eggs or meat, just fish with everything. Yeah. With lockdown, it was interesting because, you know, everyone was doing two things. On one hand, they had more time to spend on things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And then on the other hand, everyone had the reality of just kind of having to kind of bang out two or three meals a day for themselves or whoever they were living with or their families. And then Palestine was a book that kind of can deliver on those those two things. So there's some kind of bigger, more ambitious baking or sort of phyllo pie with chicken shawarma kind of dishes. But then also... You know, Sammy's dad's Hassan's easy eggs became a kind of Instagram sensation at the beginning because it was just a new way of re- reinventing eggs. You know, this is so, so simple. good. This dish is so good. And that's the, f- the first dish in the book, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The first recipe is a huge deal, isn't it? You have to choose. And I tried to talk Sammy out of this book. I said, Sammy, come on, we don't need to tell people how to kind of soft boil eggs. And he was like, oh, but, you know, the combination of this with the za'atar and the lemon, I was like, oh, I'm not sure. So Sammy got the last laugh. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. You need to go into details. You need to tell people what it is. <laughs> I soft boiled eggs and then you dress them with olive oil, za'atar, lemon juice, spring onion. So simple, but so delicious as well at the same time. They look great as well. We kind of had almost like an argument. Are we going to open the book in this recipe? It's like, you know, it's so simple. Are we going to tell people how to boil egg? And uh, I think you should. What do you mean? Delia made a career out of telling people how to boil eggs. Like... I was campaigning to get the recipe for scrambled eggs for 300 from the hotel days, but he didn't think, didn't think we needed I'm sure that. I'm sure this one tastes much better. What's the other runaway dishes from the book that people were making so much? It started with the eggs and then uh, people went to the msa'a, which is a bake of chickpeas, tomatoes, aubergines. Again, it's such a simple dish, but it kind of delivers on 
comfort, the flavors. It's a happy dish to have, you know, on its own with just a hunk of bread or with a salad. And also the tahini rolls. The swirls, yes. I saw quite a lot of pictures of those on Instagram, yeah, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, there's quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> the recipe that I thought maybe people are not going to be making is the shawarma pie, filo pie. Yeah, Which lot, is layers yeah. of potatoes and chicken and So many people are making and... that. I mean, Sarit, you saying that people don't like carb on carb they on say carb. That. I mean, that is layered <laughs> with potatoes, doused in tahini, chicken shawarma, wrapped in filo pastry, and then doused in butter. I mean, people just are loving it. Look, I'm, I'm always surprised <laughs> by which recipes become... Like which recipes in a book become super popular is it's always an extreme unknown. Yeah. And then it always surprises you because it's always something that you think no one is ever going to do it. I'm yeah. going to cook it because I love it. I'm going to put it there. And then suddenly everyone is like, oh, my God, you've just like. But but uh, I mean, the secret of like a filo pie is amazing because you can prepare everything and then just bake it when guests come. I mean, there's nothing That's the best way to entertain, isn't it? Yeah, people are quite timid when it comes to pastries. And, you know, filo, it's quite delicate and breaks and you have to work with it really quickly. I mean, you know, I don't have to explain. But you get this beautiful golden pie and people are actually quite impressed with it. But also the, the, it tastes wonderful. <laughs> I often make the filling just as it is and then have it with, with salad. Don't tell that to people, Tara. No, we, <laughs> we even say it in the book. I spent my life trying to make things kind of gluten-free or carb-free and just did Sammy's head in and trying to suggest alternatives to, to bread. And then I kept mentioning the word, the sort of, the evil word quinoa and Sammy after about six months was like, if you mention the word quinoa once more, there is no quinoa in this book. There is no quinoa in Palestine. Although quinoa is a good substitute for bulgari. <laughs> If anyone's looking for no, one. I, I'm with Sammy. <laughs> Look, I don't, eat, I don't eat wheat and I'm still with Sammy. You do not replace cracked wheat with quinoa. It's not the same. But thing. also, you know, in the Middle East, we eat bread with everything. Literally okay, with everything. I'm, I'm with you. I'm and with you. in some cases where, you know, you go to somebody's house and yeah. they serve you this beautiful mm. taboo bread that they just baked. And Tara looks at it and, like, and I, I kind of whisper, she doesn't eat bread. And they go, she's sick. <laughs> She's sick. <laughs> <laughs> Got to save room for the shatter. <laughs> poor her. <laughs> poor, yeah, poor Tara. This is kind of my theory for why this was the perfect lockdown book. Because not only is it rammed with such delicious food and, you know, very accessible food, it also is a little bit of a journey. And also, I think in lockdown, we had a little bit more time. Yeah. You know, I read somewhere that this has been the year of books. And... This is really a book to sit and linger. You know, there's such beautiful writing there and, and you can read it back to back okay. or you can just kind of go on a little trip with your dinner and, and kind of linger with all these amazing characters that you met and you bring to life. And I think there's something so special about that. And so, you know, so successfully done. Beautifully right. done, yes. Can we put that, put that quote <laughs> on the next edition? <laughs> But it was funny because we learned a lot from each other because Sammy and I have got very different kind of energy levels almost. And I learned a lot from him about the power of actually not having kind of 10 plans in every morning before breakfast. I had this sort of spreadsheet, Excel spreadsheet with all these people we wanted to meet and I was trying to contact them and I was getting cross with Sam Sammy that no one was responding. And he's like, dude, yeah. it just doesn't work like this. We're just <laughs> going to have to turn up spend the time like it's all going to work out but it's not going to be sorted out by an excel spreadsheet six months in advance and that was really kind of nerve-wracking for me because i'm such a planner 
Um, so I learned a lot from Sammy about kind of an alternative pace and actually how much you get from just actually taking the time to kind of sit. Yeah, it's a region where you... Yeah. Excel sheets don't really... <laughs> don't cut it. Uh, ...work in the Middle East. <laughs> it's more about, yeah, it's about going and experiencing and changing, but then you end up with something you never knew you were looking for, which is quite nice. Yeah, wonderful yeah. people. And, kind of, you know, you never know what you're going to be expecting. And, you know, we just turn up and they're just wonderful. So welcoming as well, no? I think it's They're really, really welcoming and they want to feed you and they want to offer you the best they have. And they're very engaging as well. They want to show it. And um, the ladies with the, all the cheese and the dairy, they are quite well known in the area and they, they supply quite a lot of the restaurants, but also you have to kind of book it in advance for what, we, what you need. They took the time and sat with us and, you know, explained about everything. And of course, we have to... Ch- they taste everything and uh, it's so wonderful to to meet such people. I think if travel could yeah. come back to what it used to be, which... Don't say if, say when, sorry. When? Well, I don't know, is it? Is it going to come back to this like ease of traveling and <laughs> meeting people and going? I hope, I really hope it does because your book is definitely inspiring to go to Palestine and to meet the people and to see everything. And, you know, we're massive fans of the region and of traveling and we can't wait for the moment we can go back as well. I don't know about you guys, but I got super hungry during all of this. Yeah. So I think it's <laughs> time for me. Yeah, it's time to go and race an aubergine. Love you so much. Going to eat now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. That is it for this episode of Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. Do join us for the rest of the Autumn series. We'll be talking to chefs and writers from all over the world and from across food traditions. From New York, it's Jake Cohen. From Seattle, Renee Erickson. And from Copenhagen, Trina Henneman. Chidna Makan will bring us a taste of Mumbai via Kent. Caroline Eden journeys through Central Asia. And we'll end on something sweet, as always, with pastry chef extraordinaire Ravnit Giri. Thank you to our producer, Miranda Hinckley, to our engineers, Paul Brogdon and John Scott, to Daniel Winshaw for writing the music, and thanks to Louisa Cornford, our Lulu, uh, for all the help she puts into the podcast, and to all our team at Honey & Co. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm hmm. 